extra, extra, read all about it. Podboy's hopping in a time machine and going back to piss on Hitler and his shoes. I'm the Nazi puncher man, Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Mr. Helper, a Cleveland Mosier. You are Mr. Helper. <laughs> I am the cake boy, uh, Ben Sheets. And, uh... We are going back in time today, way far back, the farthest back we've ever been, to the year 1944, the height of the largest war, the biggest war, and some say the most stylish war. I'm talking, of course, about World War II, and we're talking about Fritz Lang's Ministry of Fear. Isn't that right, Cleveland? It sure is. This we are was, talking about that. This was your pick. It was. Um. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So... One of the key reasons I picked this film is, of course, my dad recommended it to me, being a you know Fritz Lang film, you know, 1940s. It's it's, it's a very your dad film. It absolutely is. Um, uh, well said. I caught it about five years ago, and I wanted to just kind of come back to it and, and see, you know, if it, it held up to, you know, how, what I'd originally thought. And, you know, just kind of re, you know, rejog the memory a little bit on it. Because there's, there's a number of things I enjoyed about the movie that I wanted to see again. The premise is a, um, a gentleman is released from a, uh, an asylum at origin unknown. Uh, we don't know why he's, he's leaving this asylum and going back out into society, what he's, you know, what, what initially got him committed, you know, if he's a stable person, if he isn't. He travels to London during the height of the Blitz. And uh, is inevitably wrapped up in a spy conspiracy that has all sorts of macabre twists and turns. Yeah, it's the the essential plot, I believe. Yeah, this was a, a first time viewing for both Ben and I. Yep. Um, I've seen several other Fritz Langs, but dude has a shitload of movies. It's in. It's is it a, over a hundred? I believe it's something. I don't know if it's that I'm high, quite, but it's it's, it's high. It's way I mean, up there. Yeah. The thing is, you know. Dude started in the silent era, and during the silent era, he was churning out a couple a year. Right. The thing about silent movies, too, are while he may have name credit for the silent films directed, some of those more minor ones, some of it is just name recognition. A lot of times in those studio systems, they would have ghost directors, uncredited directors, stuff like that. We talked about that a bit when we talked about um, the thing from Another World, mm -hmm. um, which is under the name of Howard Hawks, but may not have been directed by him, up for some debate. Howard Hawks in quotation Right, exactly. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought this was a pretty fun film. I think that it's somewhat familiar territory for Fritz Lang with stuff like this. I was reminded a lot of M. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. Is a, which is a film of his that I really like a lot. Yeah, I love M. The thing about M, though... And the weird thing for me is I feel like and this may have been just limitations of the Hays Code at the time in the mm-hmm. 40s, but I feel like M was a bit edgier, more hard-hitting of yeah. a movie. Yeah, well, it was about child murder. Yeah, so. well, I mean, <laughs> it's <does>. inevitable for <laughs> that. I don't know. I, I, I saw the similarities, and I kept comparing it into my in my head, and I was like, Man, even emotionally, I I don't think this movie hits quite as hard as that. And I mean, loaded subject matter, you know, but I thought this movie was very Hitchcockian 
in a lot of ways. Yes, it definitely. reminded me of the classic Hitchcock thrillers mm-hmm. in the yeah, way it's like set the, up, uh, like the thirty, the thirty nine steps. Yeah, you uh, have that, and the man who knew too much. You and have shit that like classic that. MacGuffin set up with the cake. You know, it's just a an object to drive the narrative forward. Mm-hmm. Sometimes MacGuffins serve a purpose. Sometimes they don't. Um, in this movie, it did, but it definitely was the main thing that drove the story forward. Well, I mean, it it wraps up the film, but like we we lose the cake, you know, fairly early on into the film. Yeah, but the the idea that the cake has something to do with what this, significance? The, yeah, the cake significance. Yeah, it, it's it at is, the heart of. It's a MacGuffin. It's it, a classic. It's, of course, it's, it's a classic MacGuffin. A MacGuffin is not a, a negative thing to have. I think. No, no. Um, it, it definitely serves its purpose. But yeah, like it is revealed what it is at the end, which is kind of atypical for a MacGuffin. But I think the the what is much less important in the film than the than the why yeah and the who and the who yeah Mm -hmm. uh i definitely wanted to key in on the the opening sequence of the film with the ticking clock uh loved that thought that was great yeah like with the the opening credits just holding on like the the moving pendulum and once the credits and the camera pulls back across the room and you see like our, our main character sitting in the asylum like in his little in his little room like just staring at the clock counting down the seconds until when he's released mm-hmm. yeah and on the nose of it's like six or whenever like on the nose like the the, the doctor, doctor or whatever yeah. comes in and says, oh, you're ready to go. Time to leave. And uh, he asks him where he wants to, to travel to. He says London. And he walks out. And that's when it's revealed uh, with a nice good old camera pan and then pull in. You know, you see that he's leaving an asylum. Right. Uh, and that probably one of my kind of favorite aspects of the film is that we – we see our protagonist like leaving an asylum. Like I, I think that's a very intriguing uh, premise for a main character to be like, well, is he our hero? Is he, is he not like he's, he, he must be reformed, but what is he reformed of? Yeah. And, and you know, like what kind of dark past does he have? And it's, it's, I think it's a little bit more interesting than like uh, your standard, like noir uh, detective or expat character. Like he's, there's a degree of, of risk, you know, it behind his character intention into that in. film noir aspect of having a lead character with a dark past that you know may have a shady background oh most definitely no uh well in that what i what i like about it is that we we know he's leaving an asylum but for the most part he's shown to be like a completely normal like polite generally kind man so it's like that adds a different layer of like what the fuck is going on here because like he seems like a totally average dude yeah like well-tempered what yeah well-tempered like not angry not seemingly nervous or anxious just like totally even like kind to people stuff like that it's like well he was fucking leaving the asylum like what what was he doing at the goddamn asylum Mm -hmm. and on top of that you know it throws his credibility into question throughout the movie in a really cool way because he is convinced about this cake thing no one's gonna believe him because he just got out of a fucking asylum yeah he's going around telling people that he's caught up in like a nazi uh spy ring conspiracy and that like 
secret Nazis in, in England are like trying to hunt him down and people are just like, you just got out of an asylum. Like, right. You're fucking crazy. I, I love that too. Like it kind of shows like the societal reflection of how even at the height of conspiracy, like people were kind of had a disregard for conspiracy. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, considering, considering your, your source too, like, yes, despite the fact that he's seemingly completely even tempered, like it, it adds a question of credibility like is he is he reliable and considering the fact that he is our protagonist um he's got that quality of like the unreliable narrator cuz you don't really know if even though we're seeing it since we're seeing it from his perspective is it really happening that way but there are a few times that indicate otherwise that I do think work cuz it does make him more sympathetic it's not like oh well dude's just crazy like when he gets on the train with the cake and the old blind guy comes in and we get those shots of like while our our guy is looking out the window that the blind guy is not actually blind and he's like looking at him. I thought that that sequence. Yeah, was really I did want to get to that. Um, So, yeah, when he gets to uh, to backtrack a little bit, he leaves the asylum. He gets to he gets to London and he stumbles upon a carnival. And well, no, that's that's outside the asylum. It's when he's at the train station waiting for the train that's going to take him to London. London. That's right. He's killing time going to the mm-hmm. fair because he he's been in the asylum for two years, isolated. So he wants to surround himself with people. Right. And he's at, that's why he's at the station. Yeah. So he he goes in and it's your Santa Fair Carnival and uh, they have a cake weighing contest. Uh, he guesses a number. He goes in to see a fortune teller. The fortune teller uh, kind of uh, shrugs him off a little bit, this older lady. And she says – and then she she stops him and says like, go guess this number instead. And so he does and he gets the cake. More specifically, she tells him at the beginning that – she's not allowed to tell him the future only about the present and the past and he gets fed up with that and he's like no i just want to know about my future Mm -hmm. because he clearly has hang-ups about his past when he asks about his future that she then says you want the cake go tell them this amount exactly uh even though the number seems preposterous he wins the cake and and leaves uh during his leaving, there's a bit of confusion between the uh, some of the other people at the carnival, and uh, and but he leaves with his cake regardless. Uh, and then boards the train, and at this point, we get to uh, what you were bringing up, where yeah. he's on his train, and uh, before the train leaves the station, an old blind man uh, joins him in his cab, and uh, I I love I love that character. Like he's he's uh, like this is kind of old wizened farmer who is blind yeah. and starts a. Uh, just you know talking you know just making up small making up small talk and conversation and they share the cake but did you want to talk about that a little bit well no i i i mean i pretty much said what i wanted to already i just thought that that was uh such a great touch that when like they hear the air raid sirens and like the protagonist is looking out the curtain then we cut to the blind guy who's sort of just like looking up vacantly and then like his eyes sharpen and he like looks over and he looks down at the cake and it's just like such a great moment where like, oh shit, this dude's not actually blind. Yeah. And then we it's get the, great irony. And yeah. we get the great part where he picks up like his walking stick and just like smashes it over the yeah. protagonist. Totally head. breaks it over him, yeah. yeah, in the first strike. Yeah. Um, grabs the cake mm-hmm. and, and just runs off. Well, and it's cool too, because like leading up to that when like the protagonist offers him a piece of cake too, like the the like the the guy like is 
uh, he's being watched, so he starts to fake being blind, and he starts like crumbling the cake in his hand. Right, and it kind of it's like this really weird kind of feeling. Like you get like the protagonist like looking over, I'm like, what the fuck is this old guy doing? Like I hand him a piece yeah, of cake, like, and he's like, it's fucking mess of it. Yeah, and he's like in a, eating like the crumbled parts out of his hand. It's like and he's it's, it's like he's going through it looking for, for something. Yeah. Exactly, and uh, and it's it's cool that like that latter knowledge, and like but in the moment it feels like out of context, it feels so strange. And, uh, yeah, and so then he, he bashes them over the head and runs off into uh, the bombed, like, regions that are being currently bombed, you know, during the right, Blitz. Exactly. And so you get this really nice, like, kind of no man's land, you know, like, set piece. Cratered, um, yeah, yeah, fields cr- and, and like, the, the ruins of, like, bombed out, like, huts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I did think it was funny that, like, <laughs> our our protagonist just, like, runs off right after him. Like, if a blind dude bashed me over the head with a cane and, like, took my cake, I'd be like, ah, damn. Keep the cake, bro. God, okay. But he just, like, <laughs> It's a good runs, cake, but, but Jesus. Like, he just, like, runs off after him. like, I'm gonna get ya. Yeah. And we've got the, the scene of, like... It's the, the principle of the thing. Yeah, the, the blind dude takes out the, his pistol, pistol and he's like shooting yeah. at him and he's yeah. hiding out in the little the little bombed out hut and then it just gets a bomb dropped yeah, right directly on it. on it so like yeah the, the old the old uh fake blind man just gets immediately detonated like as like a yeah. as a, a bomb gets dropped yeah. on the cabin and so the the protagonist awesome. is just incredibly confused in yeah. that and it's like in the first 15 minutes of the movie like it's a yeah. great great way to start like the whole intrigue thing like fake blind man gets demolished by, <laughs> by nazi bomb yeah yeah, so I, I love it. Like, and that's that's the thing um, is the the pacing of this film really holds up. I think like uh, beat for beat, like it it uh, it doesn't it doesn't take too much time moving from scene to scene, and the events scene to scene are are pretty fun as well and in- intriguing. I agree for the most part. I think it starts to get a little bit convoluted midway through. It, it starts to for me it, it comes across as a little bit too much. Like ah, the intrigue, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the 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 mystery seems uh, a little bit too twisty and turny to really be like super cohesive you, you, can, say, point, you can say contrived it's, it's okay it's a bit yeah, it's a bit, <laughs> yeah it's a bit to the point where it's yeah it's a, it's contrived i think is a good word for it because you have moments where you're like there should be some effect to what's happening right now mm-hmm. and they're just being very blase about some of the things that are happening you've got a lot of characters that look kind of similar i mean i guess a lot of people in the 40s just kind of look the same <laughs> the there's definitely a few moments where i'm like wait who is that person is yeah. that such and such or such and such right well cuz the majority of the the key characters are all academics and so they're they're all just like guy in suit you know sometimes glasses and yeah it's it can be kind of hard to pick them out right and you've got like a couple of different like beautiful blonde ladies who are hot for the protagonist true i had a hard time keeping them straight a little yeah. bit and the, well the fun part too is like so does the protagonist um like because one of the 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 upcoming sequences in the film is uh he goes to a seance um, there's a yeah. few other key events that happen before him, but we'll, we'll skip over. To try and find the the fortune teller, mm-hmm. who uh, originally gave him the the proper weight for the cake, because clearly, like, she's affiliated in some way with this spy ring. Yeah, right. And uh, when he goes there to meet uh, Madame Bell, Madame Belaine, or something uh, like that. Yeah, it's yeah. something very close to that here. Yeah, Belaine. You're right. God damn it. All right. Uh, so. 
they go to a seance. They find – and he goes there to find Mrs. Belaine, uh, the fortune teller. But the person who comes out is, is a different, a different person. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, hence you know, another piece of like the, the, the general confusion in this film. And uh, she invites him and uh, his associates in to join in this seance. Uh, and it's my favorite scene in the film. Uh, Mine too, and I think it is the closest thing, the closest scene in the film to being any sort of horror whatsoever. Yes. Like, we we stray from, like, straight-up horror sometimes, but I, I think the, the seance is, like, the only spooky scene in the movie. I think the way it's executed is even for for a forty four film, it's still pretty spooky. Yeah, it definitely got me. Like the like it's it's eerie, it's moody. I, I like I liked that quite a bit. Yeah, like the the lighting is just fan fucking tastic, and I love the set too. Like with the high like the high vault ceiling and those like cobra like candelabras. Well, yeah, and like, like the 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 table they're sitting around has like that that like chinese dragon Again. that's holding like an orb that during the seance the light just comes from the orb and then if you notice the the mosaic patterning in the floor was like based around a zodiac as oh, well yeah, like right. and all the chairs yeah, yeah. are lining around it like just all sorts of like cool like uh aesthetics that i i'm, I'm all about yeah, yeah no i thought that was very cool and uh, to have like the 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 whispering of the spirit during the seance that you can't really understand it at first mm-hmm. but then as it goes on it gets louder and more comprehensible yeah and it's cool because like um like madame belaine is sort of like channeling the spirit and like you it's this great moment too because you see like the the main character is kind of like not wanting to like hold hands in the circle with all of these strangers when he's in the midst of this uh like this intrigue right and um like very legitimate reason so it's a nice like tension moment where he's sort of rendered like vulnerable the the lighting is really neat how it like it it keys in on each of the characters like as it focuses in on them but like clearly the lights are still dark in the room and it's just this cool like kind of set dressing way of like uh bringing out certain elements in the scene very noir when you start hearing like madame belaine like channeling the the ghost whispering and she starts she starts saying you know like you know you were you were waiting for the ticking of the clock and like she she keys back into like the the opening theme of the film and she says a couple of specifics and she calls out steven our protagonist in particular and that's when he starts like shouting and screaming and then a gunshot goes off and the lights come on and you get your good old whodunit you know right someone has been murdered (laughs) yes um Stephen still has the gun that he uncovered from the old blind man on him at the time. So, right. like, they're like, hey, look, he has a gun. He's like, yeah, but I didn't shoot anything. Like, it has the same number of bullets in it, which is one. Oh, gee. Right. <laughs> yep, they think I did it. Not oh, great. Shucks. So, you know, from the help of one of his compatriots, uh, who uh, he, he manages to escape. And so he's once again a man on the run. Or for the first time, I guess. He's a, he's a man on the run now from the law and from this, this unknown so- ministry. My question here, do we want to get into that conversation about, because this is the most horror-adjacent element of the movie, about uh, considering this a horror movie? Um, I would say it crosses over into horror. Okay, sure, um, yeah. You know, I don't know if that's enough, but definitely. it is for me. But <laughs> yeah, uh, it's definitely occult-themed. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, I see a lot of those seance elements as very noir-themed as well. Sure. And the inner lap, uh, overlap is a little hazy, um, but I would love to hear some of your opinions a bit more on uh, well, it's a simple how you one. consider um, well, uh, this horror. All I did was just went to Wikipedia and and found like the 
the Wikipedia definition for horror film. Oh, sure. Um, uh, I figured that's that's the best place you can start. Yeah. And uh, it says a horror film is a film that seeks to elicit fear. Um, it's initially inspired by you know such literature as Poe, Stoker, Shelley, etc. Horror existed as a film genre for more than a century. Uh, the macabre and supernatural are frequent themes. Uh, horror may also overlap with fantasy, supernatural fiction, and thriller genres, which it does in this case. So totally, I figured that's that's, yeah. that's all I yeah. had. I mean, yeah, the mystery I mean, of I, fear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's a it's definitely a film of a different era, but I would say that this film is kind of horror in the same way that something like Silence of the Lambs is horror, even though Silence of the Lambs may be more overtly terrifying. Like it's it's ultimately like. Uh, like a murder mystery drama, like a like yeah. a like a police thriller, um, and it's got some very unsettling moments. And I, I think that, I like that, that Min- Ministry of Fear is kind of the same. Like you know, it is a film of 1944, so like the the genre has changed and updated a lot. And you know, it's it's sometimes hard to consider films this old like scary at all. But I think that if you if you look at it in the context of when it was released, exactly, and the kind of thing yes. that Fritz Lang had been doing otherwise, I think that audiences in 1944 would probably have found that séance scene pretty pretty creepy to sit in the theaters and watch that. Like I think it, I think it would have elicited probably the the same kind of reaction that we get from a lot of modern horror films. I definitely think it's horror adjacent. Yeah. That's for sure. And the thing about genres are I think they're very fluid. Extremely. You know? Oh, yeah. Like, they're not set in stone, you know. it's They're very gray areas, you know. They overlap more than anything else. So, mm-hmm. like, I didn't bring that up to disagree with you. No, I no, just no. wanted yeah. to hear your yeah. opinion on some of that since it was your pick. Oh, so. most definitely. And, like, I, I'll even – I'll go as far as to say, like, if, if you, you had to just put one genre on it, it would – be crime noir like it, it wouldn't be horror yeah um but it definitely crosses over into it well enough and i hope that's enough for the podcast you know for sure i, I mean like i said we have we have strayed away from you know your your general like dinner table horror before yeah. you know horror like, adjacent yeah totally horror adjacent fine. i mean even like when we just did the vanishing a couple of weeks ago you know it's the same kind of thing. Like, it's not a particularly scary movie, but it definitely has some some themes and elements of horror that make it horror adjacent enough that you know it bears talking about. And you know, considering that Fritz Lang did come out of the school of German expressionism and stuff like that, which is uh, you know a huge root of the horror film genre you know, with a lot of those early examples of German expressionism, like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari mm-hmm. and like vampire and the, the Nosferatu and Nosferatu and like the phantom carriage and shit like that. But, you know, by that point in his career, he was not in Germany for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, Here's a fun question. Would you consider Metropolis to fall into the genre? Um, I, I think I would. I think I mean, it's pretty we're, existential. If like, we're, if I think in the same way that Ministry of Fear would, like it's not really a horror film, no. but it, it has some elements. It's definitely more sci-fi than yeah. Than oh, of course, in the same way this is more thriller, but it definitely crosses over. I mean, like the it has, yeah, it has some examples. You know, yeah. yeah, everything yeah. to do with the automaton, it's very like it's, it's pretty spooky. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a stretch, but that's not to say horror elements don't exist within it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think. The difference is 
it's horror adjacent. There's horror elements of it, but I would really have to stretch to categorize Metropolis as a horror movie, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know. I you mean, know, like it's definitely sci-fi. Like the existential themes, like carry through the main times, plot. You know? you know, like that is like one of the most the most like like focal aspects of it. So yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'd have to get back into it. I'd have to like watch it yeah. again to see. But I, I feel like those those threads can be can be tied through throughout the whole thing. But yeah. Anyway, well, uh, let's see. What other key points do we have in the film? Um, the two other primary characters are the uh, what is their what is their name? What is the Hilfas? Yes, the Hilfas, yeah. the Hilfa siblings, and uh, they're running a charity, a charity yeah. organization called the uh, what is it? The the mothers, the of mothers Freedom? of free nations, free nations. I believe. Yes, mothers um, of the free nations, and, and that was the festival, like at the festival where he got the cake. That was uh, the the charity that was that was uh, doing the cake weighing contest. That's how he got wrapped up with them. When he got to London, he went th- to their office to try to find the the fortune teller's um, address. Yes, and so uh, he meets uh, Willie and Carla Hilfa, and uh, they are Austrian refugees who have since you know uh, moved to London and or escaped to London and set up their little charity. And their last name means helpful or help. And they certainly are. Because they're charitable people. <laughs> the Hilfas. Yeah. So uh, they assist in whatever way they can, and we get a number of sequences with, of uh, Stephen interacting with Carla. Uh, and them, you know, inevitably falling in love. That is probably my least favorite thing about this movie. <laughs> I, I agree the, fully. The shoehorned romance that has no place in the actual story. They just had to do it because it was 1944 and you couldn't have a romance, a, a film without a romantic subplot. Man, and in the <laughs> tradition of noir, I was just hoping that it was going to be like a femme fatale type of character. With yeah, but the it's double not cross. at all. Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think. I think that the the femme fatale is is pretty overbaked, even 1944 at that point. Like, I, I'm not I, saying that I, I I enjoyed or preferred that, but like, I'm not sure if the femme fatale would have been the right answer. I mean, for that. I think it would have like, made her mis- more of a well-rounded yeah. character than just simply being yeah. a love on interest. Yeah. You know, well, we have like, we do have like a, the the femme fatale character in uh, uh you know Madame Belaine. Uh, as well, so that would have been yeah, somewhat. Um, yes, yeah, you know, I mean that's Out, outside of the seance, she doesn't play that much of a well. Role actually, film. you were out of the room at the time, but the the sequence when he returns back to her flat has one of my favorite shots in it. They're sitting on a sort of a, a couch, and to her right is her purse. And uh, the main character is just trying to do as much digging as he can, and he's talking to her, and he's got his arm up and around the back of the couch. And while they're they're having uh, they're having dialogue, which is nice because the dialogue itself is like multi layered. Um, there's a lot of uh, like double entendre referring back to like the spy organizations and such, and like telling futures and things. He's also reaching over and like checking her bag, and sure enough, he sees like a small like a small handgun in there, and it's all done in one shot too. And like it it feels very genuine, like she wouldn't recognize that like he's fishing through her bag during it so it looks like a, it's a really nice like uh sleight of hand play and uh i 
uh, enjoying roguish characters, like thought that was it was it was quite well done. And I'd, I'd love to know how many shots that took because you have to get the dialogue right and also like get that that sleight of hand in there. Yeah. So I thought that was a cool moment in the story. And it's it's great, too, because like that ends once he's like got the gun in his hand, he's checked it. She she calls his bluff on it and says, you're not going to find any bullets in there. And uh, it's it's cool that like she was aware of it the whole time. It makes her like a fairly powerful character. But anyway, going back to the Hilfa siblings uh, and the the the, the love uh, arc, there, uh, Stephen and Carla are trying to solve more of the mystery, and they end up going uh, having to escape into a um, what's the term a like a protective area during the during well, the raid. Well, yeah, a, a bomb shelter, yes. but they're they're in a subway. It's That's it's, right. It's yeah, just a subway just station. A subway yeah, station. underground and yeah. they're they're with a like with a the, bunch of other people. Yeah. So they're in the huddled masses awaiting, you know, the the inevitable bomb strikes and during that sequence Stephen gives us our little bit of exposition on why he was in an asylum and you know we we learn that he is just inherently a sympathetic character and one that we we can trust as a narrator which which i i liked i, I like that the twist was actually he ex- is a good person to an extent honestly one of my favorite elements of the movie is there's a point where he goes back into the hospital and the scotland yard i believe it is comes in to question him and he's giving them this whole story and they're just like, you're insane, you're crazy, you're just imagining this. And a very brief time in the movie, there is a little question being put into the reality of the events of the movie before that, whether it was in his mind as a fantasy. Well, and I think that though he does reveal to Carla like why he was in the asylum, uh, you know, that his wife was like terminally ill and she kept asking him to like put her out of her misery. So he eventually like went to the drugstore and got some shit and like and essentially performed a mercy killing. Yeah. Well, no, the thing is is he got he got the drugs. Like he got the the poison to kill her, but then couldn't follow through with it. She found it and did it herself. And right. and I, I liked that because like it still makes again, like he, he couldn't do it. He wanted to like put her out of her misery and help her but like it was just too hard for him and he couldn't bring himself through to do with it but his wife did it for him and did right, it anyway but, uh, but my 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 point is is that we don't ever see this through flashback or anything so it's just we his. still don't know is what it's you're saying ju- yeah. yes that's my mm-hmm. point it's like it's just and Ben's his, point too, it's yeah. just his word so it's like well while he is convincing there's still that bit of doubt like dude was in an asylum like is this story that he's telling true or did he actually murder his wife you know and while while it's like never really addressed it's it's pretty obvious that like he he is innocent i do still like that that sort of speculative nature especially when he is being questioned by the 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 inspector from scotland yard because like they're like yeah we know what you did like we know that it was tech quote unquote a mercy killing but you're still in an asylum you're still crazy like you're still not reliable yeah and it, i was like i was like yeah he's kind of not he's he kind of <laughs> still isn't reliable exactly even though, he's tell- even though he's telling the truth about the nazi spy ring like he's not a particularly reliable character and i, I like that i mm-hmm. wish we had more of that to be honest because <laughs> i i think the the time before they you know go back to find the cake and discover it is pretty brief 
you know, in the movie and having the prior events of the movie put into question as a sort of the camera being an unreliable narrator because it's, you know, from the perspective of the main character's fantasies is a super cool idea, you know, and unreliable narrators in film aren't super common, especially during that time. So they had elements of that in there and they work super well when they were in there. I just wanted more of it. Yeah. Honestly. And I, what I will say is that once, uh, I, I like how like for a good chunk of the film, like we see the Scotland Yard investigator, like pursuing our, the, the protagonist, but he thinks he's part of the Nazi spiring. Cause he's just like this mysterious man in black who keeps like showing up and he narrowly escapes him. Like the, the twist that, ah, he's a police detective all along. Like it, that's fun. But I, I liked that element of intrigue. And once the guy reveals himself to be the inspector and then there's like that last good chunk of the movie where dude is just going around with scotland yard being like yeah investigate this investigate this this. (laughs) investigate this true i I thought that 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 took a lot of the good drama out of it like i wish it was i i would have liked it better if he escaped from scotland yard like they didn't believe him still still. a man on the run trying to prove himself yeah. yeah trying to that that good old thing like he's still on the run from both the law and the spy ring and he has to clear his own name and he has to stop the spy ring by himself because ultimately it does just end up being scotland yard it ends up a little too cleanly yeah you know? yeah like, no i agree like uh and too like when he's at but they go they return to the bomb site and like they're pointing out the stuff one of my favorite little things about it was uh he they're 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 just searching for the remnants of the cake to see like what was in the cake and they get out like shovels and they're trying to filter like the sand to see if they could find any cake or whatever and there's a there's a callback to the birds being in the area and the main protagonist like right before they're they're about to just clean up shop and call it a day and just you know like blame everything on the protagonist after all he says wait a minute and he runs up to the bird's nest and he grabs a massive piece of the cake box out of this little bird's nest yeah like 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 these little sparrows could just like like yeah pick up like like half a cake box and like put it in this tiny nest bird <laughs> bird x machina yeah i and just then, imagine like six birds like carrying it like people do a coffin it's or like in a, a disney movie like, like, well, and, that, and that the microfilm that was hidden in the cake that will clear his name did just so happen to be in that one piece of, oh, cake of that, that cake, yeah that the bird which i love taken. too like it could have the the, the the piece of microfilm was uh, like the little capsule of michael my, michael film <laughs> yeah, the little yeah. capsule of microfilm was so small like it could have just had a little bit of cake on it and been in the bird's nest and we would have bought that right. like instead they had to have this huge piece of the cake box in there um but yeah you find that the microfilm is like plans like like attack plans um uh root, roots of attack for the nazis to successfully invade Mm-hmm. Well, there were, it was, yeah, it was England's attack plan and then they were trying to smuggle oh, it Oh, that's what yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, and we were talking about, um, like, what we would have wanted out of this movie. Uh, we, you know, we, we brought that up a couple of times. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, a good reason to bring up why I picked this film. And one of the things that I do really like about this movie and Please. also classic films in general is – because we have a greater scope of cinema to look back at this film on, like we have a much larger lens to inspect it with uh, than the film had at the time. 
uh, it gives us a really cool opportunity to see like a lot of these like cool ideas that might necessarily have been done as well as they could have at the time or 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 even not like you don't have to blame the time just you could have been done even then we can take those ideas and and do something with them you know like else and you know like imagine what they could have been ourselves and I think that that's that can be worthy of a watch by itself whether the actual film it's you know like meets like that 10 out of 10 or not like I still think it can be a valid watch to totally. gain like insight because mm-hmm. um, because again like the and and lo- this film actually does pull off a lot of those great things as well but it definitely doesn't pull off all of them and it makes it makes a, you know a couple of blunders but I think that you know in, in a modern setting like with those blunders removed you could you could have a really really comparable film well, even today I think the really cool part of that too especially watching older films on the show is you get to see what uh, legacies of technique and style have endured, yeah, um, especially and evolved in, in a lot of ways in yeah. terms of bringing it back to the source and stuff like that. But you also see what has aged badly. Yes, you know, yeah. and that's it's equally you fun know, too. Like with a lot of new movies, we don't get that benefit of time that a lot of these movies have, and a lot of these movies, or at least some of them have not aged super well and I would say most their movies for yeah. it but you can still glean a lot of you know evolution out of them yeah. you know of technique of style of yeah you can theme. observe the history of it yeah yeah I, I think another thing about this movie too is that maybe to its detriment like Fritz Lang at this point in his career already had so many bangers under his belt that, like, when such an accomplished director like Fritz Lang makes a film that's not a masterpiece, I think it also kind of has... Right, because you're comparing little, it to the masterpieces. you're comparing it to other, like, because you know what he's capable of. So it's like when he doesn't accomplish that on every film, that I, I think it, it makes it a little bit harder to forgive. Um, not that this is a bad film, but I do think that in the context of some of his other work, it, it does fall short in, in several aspects. Yeah, and I, I think in some ways this movie is a victim of its time in a lot of ways because this is during the, the time period where the Hays Code of movie censorship outright in the United States was at its strongest and strictest. Yeah. You know, that's why we have such a clean ending that's why we have that romance directly well, in it. That's and, why we don't see actual direct violence on screen. And I mean, also, like, this movie came out in 1944. Like, the war was still on. You know, like, it was it was taking place in present day for, for the people who are watching it. So Right, which makes they, that tension just all the higher. It, right, at the time, and also <laughs> why they why they ended it so cleanly. Right, that resolution's yeah, kind of needed. Because <laughs> how, how pessimistic would it have been to, to have it God, yeah. to have it end with the Nazi spy ring winning? Yeah, yeah. You know, in 1944 yeah. in the UK? Absolutely when not. Were, when they were actively being blitzed well, to I have guess, them not beat the Nazis? That's the thing, too. You know, at the time... People were audiences were looking for strong, clear cut heroes and villains. That's why the hero, even though he had a dark, ambiguous past, that's why they very much limited that ambiguity 
to as small of an amount yeah. as possible. Well, right. by the end of the film, yes, yes, for sure. Like, yeah, by the end of the film, it is very clear he is yeah. he is your yeah. your clean cut protagonist. Right. But yeah, it, it's cool that like it, yeah, the seeing the the evolution of that throughout the film, um, for sure. Like, at least at least there's a neat arc there. I'll just conclude the the plot, and then I do want to get back into the the forced romance part because there's some yeah. giggles in there. Let's do it. But to conclude the plot line, uh, after they find the microfilm, they go back to the 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 big the big boss generals. We get some cool sets there of like the the big battle plans and uh, world maps and things. The Scotland Yard goes to find the one of the ta- the tailor or one of the people at the 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 seance to bring them in. Stephen, our protagonist, goes in first to kind of scope the place out with Scotland Yard ready to go in at any time. We see the the villain make a phone call um, and order a suit, obviously some sort of code, and then recognizing that he's surrounded, runs into a back room and <laughs> commits scissor coup. Um, <laughs> and, uh, kills himself with some big old scissors. scissors. Yeah. And at one- I, I like it too because like during the sequence, like when he's dialing the phone, like he's dialing it with the with scissors the scissor- and you well, think yeah, like he got- could just like try and stab the protagonist or something. Well, the thing is too, it's like I didn't pick up immediately on the fact that he had killed himself because like <laughs> he just runs into the back room and then they take their sweet time breaking the window and they get back there and he's just impaled on the scissors so my my natural first instinct was that he was doing what you're not supposed to do and he was running with scissors and he tripped and he impaled himself on the scissors which i think is a lot is a lot what, more fun what i love too is that the ambiguity is still there for that to have been what happened yeah. like he was running into the back room to get a tommy gun or something and just off <laughs> right, himself and just accidentally tripped, and he just tripped yeah. on the scissors <laughs> i, I kind kind of prefer that it's more real there's more realism there it's uh, definitely funnier yeah, yeah uh so yeah our protagonist like during those events he quickly like redials the phone he asked the operator to call back and well no he when the when the guy's dialing it he memorizes the, the number, number that yeah. he's dialing we That's see him right. we see him mouth oh it. yeah which is great too it's it's well done because like it looks like the protagonist would make sure to like mouth the numbers out like whenever the guy isn't looking and so we get that really nice back and forth very hitchcocky and because yeah. of course they're having a conversation in the middle of that too right. like it's so it's just just a number of nice like layers uh anyway our protagonist redials that number and carla his his love interest answers the phone oh no so he goes back to confront and of course carla is is innocent in this scenario but her brother willie hilfa willie hilfa um, willie willie help yep <laughs> willie willie help willie help turns willie, out he willie won't, won't. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so we learned that, uh, of course, the, the character most primed to be running a spy ring is running the spy ring. Of course, the, the Austrian refugee is the secret Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. would have guessed? Like, it, at least, like, the, the other Austrian refugee isn't. Like, I guess that helps. Like, well, yeah, it, but it, only... it doesn't help from, like, a plot perspective, but at least it helps from, like, a, representa- you know, like I a mean, representative I think, perspective. I think, she was, I think she was definitely culpable. She might not have been... Like, she might not have liked what they were doing, but it's not like she was actively working against Willie until the end when she has to kill him because now she's in love with our protagonist. Well, I thought it was like... So love love saves the day. Well, I thought, like, she was unaware. Like, she was... She she actually didn't realize that... Is is that what happened? Because I... It seemed to me that she knew what was happening. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I could be wrong. They They didn't... I give it's some of the, that stereotypical it. stuff a pass because Fritz Lang himself was a refugee. 
you know it's uh well right obviously which i which is why i did think it was funny that the the refugee turned out to be the secret nazi because you'd think that fritz lang would make it definitely not the the austrian refugee yeah he's kind of being like one painting yeah. a target on his own back. right <laughs> like, it's like wait a second the dude with the accent was the villain all along maybe fritz lang is a yeah. nazi spy <laughs> Yeah, which yeah was was interesting. Um, I do I do love how the the that sequence ends with like our protagonist and and Willie are, are in a in a in a battle like a you know like the hand to hand with the guns and he he wrestles it out of his hand and he run or the sorry no the, it gets knocked out of the hand and she picks it up of course and the brother seeing the sister with the gun cuts the lights and runs out of the room and he says you wouldn't shoot your brother would you and we get the bang and. Uh, because he, he cuts off the lights, the door opens, and we get him silhouetted in the door in typical noir fashion. Yeah. And then closing the door into darkness, we get the line, and then the bang, and you just get the, the hole of light through the door. Like, it's great. Like, it's I cool love the, awesome. the light. And uh, and then the door, like, swings back open, or he goes in over and opens it, I forget. Yeah. And the brother's dead there on the ground. And you get this beautiful, like, comic book, like, panel-to-panel framing, like, in this one shot of, of all the sequences. It's it's. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And then he has the the shootout with the other Nazis on the roof of mm-hmm. the hotel in the rain, which is a cool set piece, especially because like we see like the the door, the rooftop doorway, and the staircase is like in darkness, and it's only lighting up like when the Nazis inside are shooting. I thought that was really cool visual. But then, surprise, Scotland Yard comes along and just shoots all the Nazis, mm-hmm. and the day mm-hmm. is saved. Yeah, day day is Scotty. Scotland Yardica, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, yes, yeah, so they show up and uh, we we get the resolution scene of the film. But I want to come back to that because that that'll nicely wrap up our biggest problem with the movie, yeah. which I think is a fun way to end it. Because like we we've talked about how much we love the film, you know, the things we liked about the film. Like let's get into the other stuff too. Like first off, several of the sequences. Like would uh, do you want to like bring up some of that stuff? Because I could see it got to you guys too. Like well, what's what stuff specifically? The love the love stuff. Oh yeah. Oh man. <laughs> I, the, the part that made me groan the most was like when we see Carla back at the, the office of like the charity with her brother and they're talking and they're, they're talking about Steven and her brother's like, her (laughs) brother's like, you're not falling in love with him, are you? (laughs) And, uh, and she's like, yes very much or something like that i'm just like god damn it of course she is like because because she has to she can't just be helping him out because she thinks he's innocent or she you know is concerned about the implications of what he's suggesting she has to be helping him because she's got the hots for him and that shit has aged the least well and and the weird because it's such a fucking 40s thing to do the the thing is like i've seen a a lot of noir movies that don't do that you know even from the same period you know from the 40s and the 50s even some from the late 30s and i think well yeah my favorite noir films don't <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so when i see it happening here it, it's all the more disappointing because i think noir is one of those genres from that generation that has aged pretty well. Yeah. Because no, I, honestly, of, I agree. I don't. I don't think it's necessarily a problem of the time. Yeah. yeah. Like it's a it's a mechanism that was used a lot in the time that hasn't aged well. Well, and I think but I like, think a lot. Yeah. Of, I think a lot of that also has to 
goes into what I was saying before about like the film needing to have like a hopeful outcome, mm-hmm. considering that it's subject matter and the time that it was released. It's coming out during the war about a Nazi spying infiltrating Britain during the Blitz. Like they need to have that shit end as happily and cleanly as possible, and not only having the Nazi spy ring defeated, but also having our protagonist get the girl, you know, like that's, that's that added level of hopefulness that I think that they would have wanted to go for. So I, I get it in 2019 watching it. I, I think it's, it's shoehorned and it's, yeah, and it's yeah. the thing though I'll say is like, it's shoehorned awful, but I really enjoyed laughing at it. Like I, I, from, from like a, an unintentional from the the director's perspective point, I thought it was really funny and I didn't, I didn't hate that it was in the movie. Like I thought it was really bad, but I enjoyed getting a laugh out of it. See, I, I agree with Tease on like how it was almost required for the movie in this, you know, it feels forced specifically. It hasn't aged well, you know, Mm. obviously I think we can all agree with that. I have a speculative question for you guys. Okay. Sure. And I think it, it brings some interesting discussion. How do you think this movie would be different if it was released five years later? Say it was released in 49 instead of 44. Because I think the story itself could still have easily have been yeah. you know, released in 49. I should. Yeah. I mean, you could release it last year. Like, yeah. Like, I, um... I, you know, I'm not sure I... I think it still probably would have been pretty similar, but it might not have been as afraid to take a somewhat more pessimistic approach. I just, I'm not sure how, you know, because by that time, and I mean, this is a this is a UK production, not an American production, but by 49, getting into the 50s, you know, like the Cold War is starting. Mm-hmm. So there's like a whole different array of fears yeah you know and spy intrigue is just as relevant absolutely yeah i don't know if it would have been if it had been released five years later i almost wonder if it would have been uh soviet centric rather than nazi centric i think well i think at that point though like we're looking at such a different film one of my favorite aspects of it is that it's set during the blitz I think like that's just a fantastic. It's, it's a good, it's a good setting. Yeah. yeah, release a World War II movie in '49 about the same. The same event, thing. Yeah, that's. Know? Yeah, I agree. You, you wouldn't even have to reappropriate it to it. I don't think Russians so at all. At all. You no, know? no, no. The, I think the reason it brings up some interesting discussions, yeah. it really emphasizes the structural limitations of releasing it in '44. Imagining yeah. it in another time really emphasizes what limits it. Because of that time period. That being said, I also wonder, had it been released five years later, in the wake of World War II, uh, you know, with Europe recovering, because by by 49, Europe would absolutely, was absolutely still in like a a major recovery process from the damage of the war. Mm -hmm. I I almost wonder if this, this same story would have been released at all. I think that when you look at a lot of other similar noir thrillers and stuff of of the of the era it almost seems like some some filmmakers were afraid to go back into the wartime so recently because it's still so fresh in everybody's mind and it was such a horrible time i think that by having this film released in 44 during the war it's almost it's not really but it's almost like 
pro-England propaganda, kind of, just in the sense that the Nazis are th- are thwarted by, like, good British police work, you know, mm-hmm. to not even have the protagonist do it, but to have, like, Scotland Yard save the day. The Brits triumphing over the Nazis, you know? It's, it's that message of hope that they needed during that particularly dark time, and... You know, in in 49, they might have said, like, shit, like this, this wound is still fresh. I don't know if if people are are really trying to to relive this time. I'd be curious to see the numbers on that. Like, yeah, I have no idea. That's 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 my thing is like statistically, we'd need to see like the release of World War II themed films. You know, totally speculative. Yeah. And I think the answer would lie in that for sure. It's totally speculative. There definitely were movies about the war. Sure. 48 and 49. And some of them even more movies, you know. I definitely agree that it would have had the possibility of being a little more pessimistic. I think on top of that, in noir, it would have leaned more on noirish structures of having more ambiguous characters. Yes. Where I think this movie was very clear-cut, good and bad. Yeah, because it needed to have good and bad Because that was necessary for the time. I think you're you're right. Um, And I wonder if it would have been better for... That. It could have been. I think our protagonist would have probably been an edgier character had this been released a few years later. I, I think you're right. I think there would have been more of those blurred lines. It wouldn't have been so so clean cut, good versus evil. Yeah, um, for sure. So do you want to talk about the final sequence oh and how, how, how great it is? Um. Uh. So, <laughs> oh man, if y'all could see like the look on Tisa's face, just like the fatigue of of like what that that I'd been to for that matter. Like it was just uh, the worst way to end this movie. Yeah, it was. It was quite it bad. Was so bad. I, yeah. I love it though. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I they it. it feels so abrupt and so much hokey, of, hokey, and of an afterthought <laughs> that it goes directly. With no sort of transition, directly from the dreary, rainy rooftop scene, the, the last of the Nazis are gunned down, we see the Scotland Yard folks come up onto the roof, like, uh, yeah, we got them, boys. Looks like good old police work did it. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts directly from that to Stephen and Carla. Driving in a convertible, Driving like the California coastline. Like on, on the countryside. The violins are playing some of the most dated rear projection I've seen in a while. <laughs> yeah, and what is even what for is, the time? Like Jesus, what does she say? Something about oh, she's just like oh, at our wedding. Like, can you imagine what kind of cake we're gonna get? And then he oh, turns yeah, around and he right. goes He's like cake. <laughs> oh my god, uh, I loved it. I, I hated it. it so much. It's so like, bad. Uh, I love it. That, it's such. <laughs> It reminded me of some like it hot kind of in that like ending <laughs> quip. You, you got to have a quip at the end, but this one just felt like so tacked on. But like... it's also like that is so I think symptomatic of like the time because like we have we haven't talked about it on the show, but like Night of the Hunter has a a, a similarly corny hackneyed happy ending conclusion that like is in my opinion the only bad thing about that film and i won't i won't get into that because we're definitely going to talk about that film on this show but like it's great too because like for this film like that that piece of dialogue just implies that like the the greatest scar that the events of the film gave upon our main character is he has ptsd about cake (laughs) (laughs) like that's that's like the biggest wound he took away from this because like nothing was going to matter 
what had already happened to him with his dead wife. Like, right, like, right. You know, but like, no, it's the biggest thing is he just he hates fucking cake now. Yeah, now now he's now he can't he can't abide by the side of cake. Yeah, uh, yeah. God, no, that that shit pissed me off. It's uh, probably the only thing that that legitimately frustrated me about this movie. Yeah. Otherwise, I thought it was uh, it was fun and solid, and you know maybe wasn't quite as tight as some of Fritz Lang's other stuff, but. Uh, that was the only thing that really angered yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just felt so super tacked on. Oh, yeah, yes, for dude. sure. So uh, that's that's the last of the points, sir. Yeah, you, know, you yeah. want to go ahead and write it? I think we're at a good, po- a good point. Why don't you start, Cleveland? Yeah, well, um, like I said, apart from those final groaners, uh, for me, like, uh, I, I enjoyed the set of it. I didn't even, I personally didn't even mind uh, that, like, the protagonist was a little bit more, like, clean cut. Uh, and especially considering like the time and why the the film has just has so many great some, so many great concepts in it that I, I find to be very inspiring with the seance sequence and again the the, the direction is just out of this world the cinematography like kicks ass because it's it's noir it, it's a it's a hallmark of the genre I'm gonna give it a good old three point five I really liked it and it has a lot of cool ideas and a, and a number of them it pulls off with a plum as well but man the hokey bits are pretty hokey and. Yeah. You know, it, it it falters, you know, here and there. No, I'm I'm pretty much I'm pretty much right where you are. Like I, I, I think that the the plot gets a little bit convoluted and a little bit too twisty and turny to really be like have tight narrative focus for like a spy thriller. Like I think a lot of times people equate like spy thrillers with like confusing plots and like that's not the way you do a good spy thriller but I I didn't think it was too bad in this I think it had a lot of great set pieces I would say that 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 seance scene like we talked about is more effective than a lot of modern horror seance scenes um it just at least in like the tone and the mood of it and like the execution I think it's it's really well done especially for uh for a film of that era, and uh, you know, I, I thought this was a was a, a pretty fun, relatively inoffensive film, um, and I think that it's good for what it is, but it does fall short from being what Fritz Lang is capable of. I'm gonna give it a three and a half too. That's right where I'm at. Definitely, yeah. I think this is a really solid film noir movie. You know, Fritz Lang is a master. I think what keeps it from being a a, a great movie. Um, and just keeps it as a solid movie. It's it's a victim of a few things. So it's a victim of being in Fritz Lang's filmography. So honestly, <laughs> because of that, you know, we're automatically going to hold it up to a very high standard. We're also, it's also a victim of its time. Like we were talking about before, it's kind of limited by wartime, censorship codes, uh, having clear cut heroes and villains. You know, in a similar way, you know, it's held back by the noir that came after it. So the noir of the late 40s were much more ambiguous. And I think that made stuff more three-dimensional than stuff of this time because of the morals. And uh, because of that, I think some of the limitations of ambiguity in this movie kept it from going to places it could have gone. I think what it is, however, is really strong. Some of those set pieces with the moody, noirish lightings are really awesome. Really one of a kind. I love that scene where it's just complete darkness. Once they close the door, you get the shots through the door. I thought that was 
awesome. I thought the shootout in the rain on the uh, rooftop was really great. I think this is a solid movie. I would give it a three and a half out of five. I think we're in pretty much agreement here. Cool. Nice. Hell yeah. Unanimous three and a half out of five. Um, also, I I did look on IMDb, and there Fritz Lang is credited with directing 47 films. Hot damn. So not quite as high as we were as we were thinking, but still. That's like, just my memory um, being yeah, hyperbolic. Like, I mean, yeah. almost 50, you know, and he was doing more than one a year. Like Hitchcock has a similar a similar output. Like that's still a lot of films. It's outrageous. To, to, to it's an outrageous number. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, uh, yeah. impressive. Yeah, seriously. I want to give one shout out. If you guys have free time, I would definitely check out. There's an amazing lengthy interview uh, between the director William Friedkin and Fritz Lang. It happened in 1974. I'll be checking that out. It's about an hour or two, and they really delve into the details of his upbringing, of his history with filmmaking, the the background of Metropolis, of movies like M. They touch into movies like this a little bit. It came out in 74, so it has the majority of his filmography behind him at that point. And William Friedkin himself is a fucking master. I mean, look at The Exorcist, you know? Right. Like, look at Sorcerer. Look at Killer Joe or Bug. Yeah, like, what a perfect person to be interviewing. Yeah, yeah. Like, God, exactly. I, yeah, I'll have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, I, I think, man, wow, what Fritz, a cool recommendation. Fritz, Fritz Lang is a particularly interesting filmmaker to me, especially considering that, like, he he started his career in, like, the, the German film industry, yeah. which, was, which was huge and remained huge during the reign of the Nazis. But, like, to come out of that school of German expressionism and then, like, once the war started to figure that like, shit out be like, you know? <laughs> be like fuck this i'm not going to stay in germany and make nazi propaganda well, films uh-huh. yeah exactly and, and to, how fascinating that is to, too because like like he was in like this perfect like prime position to benefit from that right largely. and to flee to the Both, uk yeah, and continue like, his career but uh, making you it's, know, it's a heroic well, move yeah, like, like, it really is and hitler were vocally huge fans of metropolis yeah. like they were trying to court him to make propaganda like movies, if fritz lang like, had wanted to be a nazi he could have been a, a very successful Nazi, yeah. and and rather, and instead, he he chose to put his life on the line and flee, and you know, keep making art for art's sake rather than make fucking hateful warmongering propaganda. And yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fucking heroic. And like, it also makes Fritz Lang a, a relatively unproblematic figure in film history yeah. from the era that he's from. And, and not <laughs> not even excluding the era, that's a rarity in and of its own. True, yeah. true, true, true. So yeah, fucking dicks out for Fritz Lang. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is it time to, to enter that place? You find yourself in a strange room, an academic circle. Every point you bring up is followed with a counterpoint. All you can see is disagreement. Nothing makes sense here. You have entered the hot take zone. All right, what's our <laughs> hot, what's our hot take for the week, Ben? Okay, so I have a particularly spicy one, and I think it's one that fits in really well with the conversation we were having about genre categorization. So my hot take is thrillers are just horror movies with more restraint see when you brought it up the other week you framed it you phrased it a little differently 
And I really like how you rephrased it. <laughs> I mean, I think I re- rephrased it pretty much the same. You know, maybe I flipped it you, around. No, you, you said like thrillers don't have the balls that horror movie or something like that. It was like a lot. It was more of a call out on thrillers. Whereas like that, this phrasing is, is a little bit more like, you know, fitting. But I mean, it it's essentially the same. So, well, you know, yeah, that, but it, but restraint can be seen as a good thing. Like the framing is is more positive towards thrillers, which I, I, I like. I like the way that you framed it. I wrote it down in my phone. Is why no. I have I have an opinion, but before I do, I would like you to elaborate on what you mean by thrillers are horror films with more restraint. Sure. Okay. So the idea. I know what you mean, but like as let's, as no, we it's... were going into earlier, you know, horror movies are based around fear and the idea of and eliciting certain moods from audiences. And with thrillers, the the MO is very similar. It's, you know, eliciting tension and releasing, you know, thrills from people. And they're very similar emotions. The only difference between tension and fear, in my opinion, is the amount you show a lot of times. You know, the difference between a categorization of, say, Rear Window, for example... The reason that's not categorized as a horror movie is because we don't directly see the intimate details of what the killer does. Right. We get the tension of imagining that stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I think I actually agree with that. Um, I, I think that tension and anxiety are just kind of diet fear. <laughs> like fear, like true fear and horror is the far end of that same spectrum. Like, you you go through feelings of tension and anxiety before you hit fear. Very quickly sometimes, but, like, it's a, you know, it's definitely a curve. So in that sense, I will agree that they are uh, trying to elicit similar similar feelings. But I I don't know if I would really necessarily say that it's thrillers are horror films with more restraint because i think there are plenty of thrillers that are wildly unrestrained but they're not really horror yes and i i have a point to to bring into that which which delightfully muddies the water and that is that there is another key aspect of that definition that we looked at earlier and that's uh to do more with setting and thematic elements as well and uh, horror very often covers the macabre And it doesn't always, though, and that's where things get muddy, right? Like, uh, for sure, like, you can have a a modern-day setting where there's nothing necessarily macabre-related, but just centered around, for instance, like you were saying with Silence of the Lambs, like a serial killer, and that's plenty enough to make it a horror film. Um, I would say Silence of the Lambs is quite oriented on the macabre, macabre, though. though, Yeah, I don't like how I framed that. I think think if you displayed... Silence of the Lambs, with enough restraint, it could easily be a psychological thriller rather than a horror. And yeah. Sure, and I and I think I think and, you can I think you can call it either a psychological thriller or a horror film, and be right both both times. Yes, well, and that's one of the shortcomings of genre categorizations in yeah, general. I sure. think we talked about it a little bit earlier, but in particular, the thriller genre is one of the broadest genres in general. I would consider thrillers to fall in three main categories so you have the action thrillers you know the balls to the wall action heavy movies you have the crime thrillers that you know may have elements of tension fear action 
but they were crime oriented, right. focusing on crimes. Even noirs would often fall in that category. And then you have psychological thrillers, which are very much that diet horror. That horror with more restraint. It's not dropping the balls on the table. Here's, you know? here's something that in the same way. Here's something that I would say is a you can't obviously can't make it a 100% general statement, sure. but I, I think that uh, an important distinction between horror and thriller is that a lot of the time in a thriller, the protagonist has more agency. Yes, than, information than, than a horror than in a horror movie. Whereas in most horror, once again, not all, but yes. most horror, there is something happening to a person, and they are trying to figure out a way out of it. Usually futilely and they're severely outmatched in a lot in thrillers typically you have a protagonist who's like an action hero or a detective or something like somebody who has agency, agency in, in and is usually running one and they're not they're not so much being acted upon by an external overwhelming force right it's, See, it, like, I, it's the existentialism that i can agree really key somewhat in, yeah. but at the same time like i said it's not a 100 yeah, percent blanket there statement. are a lot of differences in there Absolutely. and i think a keystone of thrillers in general are dramatic irony and that means you know having the story be a beat or two ahead of where the character is and that limits the agency usually yeah. of the main character even if he might not be completely trapped by a situation there is that tension that arises of him not knowing the situation and being limited in his agency because of that right well i would say even something like uh you know like the vanishing which which we have agreed is more so a thriller than a horror film but it does have a bit of that horror crossover something like The Vanishing, Rex has so much agency in that he is continually searching for Saskia, whereas if he decided to just walk away from the thing, he could, and he would come out okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas his ultimate downfall is a result of his obsession and his agency. Mm -hmm. The horror is not so much being enacted upon him as he is chasing it to his to his own undoing. You know what's really funny is I have a comparative on the other side of that scale that barely hits, and that's the lady vanishes because the main character has little agency and is trapped on a train and can't get out. And I would say that film is a little bit more horror than thriller because the information is being provided to her like as as hardly as she can and it's mostly her being caught up in the confusion of it. It's also one of my like my favorite like personal favorite Hitchcock films. I don't think it's like one of his best, but it's it's one that like I, I, I find near and dear. I think a, a, another comparison that I would make is like Alien to Die Hard. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> I think they do I think they do have some some similar some similar aspects whereas like <laughs> they do. in in, in Alien the crew collectively decides we have to hunt down and kill this thing before it kills us, yeah? But they are wildly outmatched. And the horror comes from, like, just how outmatched they are. Whereas in Die Hard, yeah, Bruce Willis is outmatched, but also he's a fucking badass. Mm -hmm. You know, like, he's outmatched, but he's hunting down and killing these terrorists because he's a fucking action hero. I mean, they're they're obviously not one to one. Well, let's unpack that. A but it's a fun bit. comparative. Let's unpack that a little bit. Do you think <laughs> horror as a genre is more pessimistic? 
you know, because of that amount to overcome? I think it can be. I, I, th- I would say that most of the time, probably yes. There are plenty of horror films that end optimistically, and there are plenty of thriller films that are extremely pessimistic. Um, things like that's where the muddy the water gets really muddy though. That's, you know? Yeah, that is where the waters get muddied. But even so, like I would say something like uh, Old Boy. Old Boy is definitely a thriller film. You know, it it has maybe a little bit of horror crossover, but that is pretty decisively a thriller. It is extremely pessimistic. That being said, our protagonist is also a fucking badass. And I think that's why it's not, it's more of a thriller than it is a horror movie because he has so much agency and so much power. Yet the end of that movie is fucking hella depressing and extremely pessimistic. So I I don't think that's necessarily the only differentiator between the two, but I think it's more like horror films have a certain set of principles and thriller films have a certain set of principles and there's crossover between those but i think what what ultimately defines a, a story or a film as one or the other is how many uh, how many principles of horror does it have versus how many principles of a thriller does it have i think it's it's more it's more like a sum of its parts thing rather than just like individual aspects yes mm-hmm. i think in Almost all scenarios with thrillers, though, you could loosen the restraints and turn them into horror movies fairly easily. I mean, obviously, it it becomes more of a stretch with action thrillers yeah. than it does with crime or psychological thrillers. Well, yeah, because crime and psychological thrillers have a lot of that horror crossover. Like, Silence of the Lambs has a lot of horror crossover. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has a lot of horror crossover. At a certain point, it becomes... Yeah. I mean, it, shit, Sleeping Beauty has a horror little... crossover. Like... You know, or Snow White. No, sorry, Snow White, yeah, has some, like, great horror crossover with the swamp scene, you know, like, you can, you can say. Yeah, like, I, <laughs> I, I think that, that there's plenty of films that have, you know, a little bit of horror crossover that are maybe not, like, truly horror films. I would say I agree with you for the most part, but I, once again, I don't think that that's, like, a, like, a, a 100%, like, blanket statement. Like, I, I, I just think of, like, really fucking balls-to-the-wall action movies that are, like, super gory and super violent that are, like, very much, like, action thriller movies yeah. and, not, and not horror films. And I think that's... Ooh, it, yeah. It's it just comes, it, it comes down films. to the problem of thriller as a genre being so broad it's like that it's you know it's like a combination it's like five genres in once that's true it's like a com it's like a combination of like the lack of restraint with the blood and the gore with the extreme pessimism with also like the existential dread you know also with like a like an overwhelming seemingly unstoppable force it's like all of these things added together contribute to making like a a true horror film and you start taking certain things away it's like okay it's got some horror crossover but it starts to become a different beast by you know mixing and matching those things yeah i think the venn diagram is fairly close together but like most movies aren't gonna have the full circle ever in either camp you know so it's just using judgment and like obviously those are very broad categorizations and like 
doesn't make anything less of a movie. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, I think there are some, there are plenty of decidedly one or the other. Like I would, I would challenge just about anybody to turn a Fast and Furious movie into a horror film. You know, just by challenge just by, accepted by like turning up the restraint, or or you know, turning a film like uh, like The Witch into you know not a horror film and into like a like a psychological thriller. You know, like I think I think there's plenty of films on both sides that are decisively mm-hmm. one or the other. Yeah, Fast and the Furious, but it's a pretty solid example but it's a, for a but thriller. It's, like I like I said before, yeah. it's a lot of elements that add up to making them those things. It's not just one single aspect. And that's the thing, you know, I think those movies are very much action movies, you right. know. And thriller is part of that by nature. Right, but action which, but that's the thing. Action is thrilling, yeah. but Horror yeah. is also thrilling. Exactly. Thriller, a thriller is an extremely broad mm-hmm. term because... A thrill just means excitement, like if we're being real, right. like a, a, in an amusement park, like a category for like a, a churning, a churner or whatever they call them, like the twisting eggs or whatever is a thrill ride, right? Right, like thrilling implies an adrenaline rush, rush. and you could be getting that adrenaline rush from having such a good time or from being scared senseless, yeah. you yeah. know, like those, those sensations sensations are both thrilling but in different ways yeah i have a slight tangent if i was to turn fast and furious into a horror movie i've been thinking about that already I just have villains that are super into just getting the the characters into awful gory crashes or like saw traps built out of cars and stuff like booby trapped cars isn't that drive or have like a speed si- no uh oh, or right. like do- drive angry <laughs> or like a speed situation where they can't slow down speed sorry that's what i was thinking of uh, speed is one of the funniest movies mm-hmm. to me because it's all in la and like the idea of driving over 60 anywhere in la especially on the highways is and not, not getting caught in traffic immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's pretty fucking funny. Right, cool. Well, I've said my piece. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, good. How spicy was that take? I would say, you know, it's a light sriracha. I think it, we came to agreement pretty quickly. But yeah, almost immediately. I think on its face, <laughs> it's a pretty contentious one. I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think could... for, for the general populace, for like most people like having that discussion, like academic or not, like it's it's probably like relatively spicy. Yeah, yeah, no. I, you, you get like staunch fans of either. I think that it it definitely does have uh, a large kernel of truth, though. So it's I, I I think, and I think that once you start unpacking it, like you you definitely do see that more. So it definitely had some some things to get into. So it was a little bit spicy. But also, like, it didn't make me have an aneurysm when it came out of your mouth. So <laughs> well, it's, that's why I do like not, sriracha for like that. It's like, spi- yeah, yeah, it's exactly. like, if you're into sriracha, like, it's not going to be that spicy. You know, we're into that kind of conversation. Yeah, so that, sri- but no, if sriracha you're not used to good. sriracha, you're not used to having that conversation. You're a little spicy. I, I do think it, it, how spicy something is, has a lot to do with your tone when you, when you say it. And if Cleveland is right and you brought this up before saying that, like, thriller didn't have the same balls as horror i think that is a way way more contentious take i definitely said the exact same thing because i have it written down in my phone you said that and then also that like but anyway it's that's a moot point we've gotten our thoughts out um and now it's time for a word from our sponsor 
Yeah, our sponsor. Uh, who is it this week? Sorry, we've got such a long list. Um, uh, Let's go to the sponsor shelf. Yeah, so over on the sponsor shelf. Sponsor uh, shelf. You know, all, all, uh, all praise. All praise be all to the sponsor shelf. The sponsor shelf. Um, as, as is required to be said uh, by the sponsor shelf. Yeah, it looks like uh, this week we have um, um, uh, good old Mr. Ribert's uh, cold blankets. Tired of using your blankets just for heat? Well, we got blankets just for cold. Come on down to Mr. Ribbert's cold blankets. That's right. You heard it here, folks. It's uh, it's going to be taking the world by storm in all the, the areas where it's too hot to not wear a blanket. You can now wear a blanket even in the hot. Mr. Ribbert's cold blankets. On a sweltering August day here in North Carolina, there's nothing more refreshing than to sit on the porch wrapped in a Mr. Ribbit's cold blanket. I have a mint julep in one hand, a fan in the other, and I'm bundled in about six or seven of Mr. Ribbit's cold blankets. Now, if you're wondering about the science of Mr. Ribbit's cold blankets, well, let's, uh, let's get the microscope out and take a deeper dive. You see, Mr. Ribbert's cold blankets use special microfan technology, wherein the blanket, once plugged into the wall, or a generator if uh, you're off the grid, uh, you, you will find that the, the tiny, the very microscopic little fans in the blanket power up and give you quite a nice summer breeze. Mr. Ribbert's cold blankets. Thank you, Mr. Ribbert. <laughs> that... Guys, we killed that. No, that'll bring us. <laughs> We're getting that spot back for sure. <laughs> that'll <laughs> that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. Next week, it's finally time for us. Toot toot. And I don't mean time for us, as in us. I mean it's time for, for us. us, as in us, as in <laughs> us. It's finally here, us. And we're gonna go see us. Wait! Oh, I can't wait. And we're oh no, I'm so excited. Like I I tried to go into it not watching previews, but they were just in the movie theater, theater, and then like Hulu has been throwing them at me hardcore the last couple of days. We're recording this quite a bit earlier than when it's coming out. I think by the time this episode is released, then us will already be out. But uh, I'm still super fucking excited to see it, and I'm hoping for uh, another fucking slam dunk from Jordan Peele. I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about it. Get get fucking hype to prepare yourself. Go back and listen to our episode on Get Out from, I believe, May of 2018. Uh, I don't don't know exactly, but uh, you can find it. Go listen to our discussion there. Um, it was me and Eugene and our friend Hannah, and it's, uh, it's a good episode. Uh, and yeah, next week, stay tuned for us. Hi friends, uh, just here with a quick update. When we recorded this episode on uh, March the 2nd, we did not realize at the time that Us's release date uh, got pushed back to March 22nd from March 15th. Um, so, unfortunately, we're going to have to wait another week for that. Um, next week, instead of us, we will be doing um, The Witch, 
the uh, 2015 film by uh, Robert Eggers, um, one of my favorite films of uh, of the past decade, and uh, my my next pick for our uh, individual picks. Um, so get excited for that. Uh, we'll be talking about The Witch next week, and um, we will have our review of Us the week after. Um, so apologies for that. We were disappointed to learn that as well. Um, that one's not on us. That's on us. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, back to the episode. And if you like us, and by us I mean us boys, you can leave us a, a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Hit those five stars or wherever else, you know, like smash that fucking like, real big boy hours, um, and do that if you want more episodes. Also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod. Follow us on Letterboxd at PodPeoplePod. Check out our back catalog, all of our fucking movies we've watched for the show and our ratings and all that shit. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. You can follow me on uh, Twitter, uh, tweeting for Light Arc Studios. Um, and then you can also find my work on ArtStation under Cleveland Mosier or Iron Prism. Uh, yeah, and uh, keep your ears, ears to the rails for good old It Stares Back. Our demo is coming. All right, what's yeah. up, Ben? So, uh, yeah, I recently found out that Google has a new podcasting service. Oh. Um, so if you're using Google Podcast, uh... Is it uh, different from Google Play Podcasts? Yeah, it's different. It's like a standalone thing. It's super interesting. Great. I haven't even downloaded it. But if you're listening to it, us from there, uh, shoot us a spooky ghost us, us. emoji. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. With, uh, but not on, too spooky. I don't want to get scared, man. On uh, Shoot it at us on Twitter, at PodPeoplePod, or at my personal Twitter, at Mr. Sheets. But, but ghost emoji responsibly, all right? And, like, yeah, I scare easily. Yeah, it's pretty spooky. The the, the first uh, three ghosts I get, I'll send a, an e-cookie to. I'll just send a cookie emoji what? to. Oh, okay. Oh, I was like, nice. I thought it was nothing, like some kind of nothing. new Bitcoin. Oh, I wasn't yeah. familiar when you said e-cookie. I was like, what the fuck is an e-cookie? I feel be, old. That would be cryptocurrency, it, wouldn't it? It probably already is. <laughs> um, but nothing soothes the soul more than a nice warm spooky, cookie. Spooky ghost cookie. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, as always, for listening. That'll do it for us this week. We are the pod people. Until next time, go out and punch your fucking resonant Nazi in the face. Yeah, get him for America! And the crown! Alright, I want to give a special shout out to uh, the writer of Ministry of Fear. Same guy who wrote The Third Man. Killing a dude. Third Man is awesome. I would definitely check it out. Some of the, the other great film noir movies you got to check out. You know, Night of the Hunter, obviously. Got to watch Gun Crazy. Got to watch The Killers, meaning the 46 one, based on the Ernest Hemingway novel. Um, the 64 one with Reagan, forget about it. Um, watch Ace in the Hole. Uh, you got to watch Shock Corridor. You got to watch 1, 2, 3. Oh, obviously, Touch of Evil. Check out Asphalt Jungle. Um, I'm just listing up film noir movies at this point. Oh, Out of the Past, Robert Mitchum is fucking awesome. That movie's great. Maltese Falcon. 
Of is pretty solid. Pretty solid. Um, not not my favorite, but it's all right. Maltese Falcon. Um, watch Ace in the Hole. I think I mentioned yeah. it, but watch it again a second time because that movie's amazing. Billy Wilder is a fucking master. Oh, watch Underground. Underground USA. Um, Sam Fuller is underrated, and that's one of his most underrated movies. It's a noir movie that really goes to crazy places, especially for its time period. And that was my uh, my recommendation corner.